Have you ever crashed and burned? Are you perhaps in the ashes right now? Your commitment to a growth mindset may be just the thing to rise you up. On today's episode, the path out of the ashes and towards growth. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 326. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. And if you've listened to this show for a while, you know that I am a big believer in how can we look at things practically in a way that'll help us every day as leaders to be more effective And today's guest is someone who has uh, not only been a listener of the show for a while, has been a dear friend for uh, a long time, and has been an organizational leader in many capacities in his own right. And uh, he's here today to teach us how to not crash and burn and how do we rise up from the ashes when we do. I'm really glad to welcome Jeff Hittenberger to the show. Jeff is a longtime friend of Bonnie and myself. He uh, previously worked with Bonnie in higher education, and he is currently the chief academic officer for the Orange County Department of Education. I'm so glad to welcome you to the show today, Jeff, because uh, you all have been doing some really innovative things within the Department of Education, uh, but also you just have such wonderful, uh, such a wonderful story of, of how your family has handled so many things and changes and, and challenges over the years. And I'm really excited to be able to share your story. Welcome to Coaching for Leaders. Great to be with you, Dave. I think maybe we should start from the beginning, um, because today's conversation actually came out of, uh, you had spoken to some of Bonnie's students recently about how your own family has navigated some of the not crashing and burning. And I know your son is a big part of this story. And I I know a little bit about your son, but not very much. And I'm wondering if you could uh, share a bit about your family story and, and where this started. I'd be happy to, Dave. And uh, you mentioned Bonnie's class. And that. I shared a bit about our journey as a family, and we were a young couple, my wife and I living in Orange County, and and our son Benjamin was our firstborn and was diagnosed with Down syndrome. And so we had to really reorient our lives to take into account what his needs would be. And then two years later, he was diagnosed with autism. Mm which, as your listeners will probably know, meant that he kind of hit a wall developmentally, started losing language, would seem inattentive, almost as if he were deaf. And for us, as young parents, it threw us for a loop. It's threw a set of challenges into our path that we had really not been prepared for. And for me in particular, I was working on my dissertation. I was a little bit of a workaholic already at that point. I was very dependent on language. I had been able to kind of navigate everything in sort of an academic and rational way. And all of a sudden, I had a son who was needing things from me that I had never really prepared myself to give him. And it was at at that point with our marriage really suffering and, uh, and our son not doing well. And then we had a daughter 21 months later that I had to really have a moment of recognizing that if I don't make some major changes in my life, we're going to crash and burn. And it was at that point that we were fortunate to run into the work of a psychologist named Stanley Greenspan. 
And Greenspan's book, The Growth of the Mind, dealt with the question of the relationship between affect and cognition. And one quote from the book that really hit me was, affect precedes cognition. If we don't take into account the emotional dimension of what's going on, we are not going to have the development cognitively that that potentially can happen. And he provided some guide, guidance in terms of strategies that he called floor time and circles of communication where I literally had to get down on the floor with Ben and try to enter into his world. What, to, to try and understand what, how he was making sense of the world. He was clearly experiencing sensory overload. He was trying to block out things that were too bright, too loud, and too troubling, and, and that caused him to withdraw. But if I got down on the floor with him and really tried to get inside of his world, I could start making sense of how he was making sense of the world. And Greenspan says, for example, take the concept of love. You don't start understanding love by having the word love introduced to you. You start by experiencing it as a baby in the affective interaction that's taking place with your mother and with your parents. And it is that experience of love that translates into a concept that then makes the word love accessible to you. So engaging with Ben helped me to understand that there was this whole affective domain, this emotional intelligence that for him was constructed in a different way than I was familiar with, that once I tuned into, uh, really helped me make sense, helped both my wife and I make sense and decode the kind of communication that he was doing, uh, which was structured in a different way than if you were strictly coming at sort of a left brain logical approach to language. And it was that experience that sort of set me on this journey of discovering the emotional dimension of life as central to our flourishing as people. And that journey in turn helped me really start to build a better marriage, a more constructive family. It was the rising from the ashes for us that then also translated into my work with students and to my work with uh, colleagues into team building and ultimately to the work that we're doing now at the Orange County Department of Education where emotional intelligence is a central part of what we do to equip our leaders and our and our frontline staff to do their work effectively. And I'm so fascinated by what you've done with the department and I, I can't wait to, to ask you more about this in a minute. I, I want to go back for just a minute and, and ask more about you and that time with Ben early on yeah. and your wife. What was the point that you hit? As you said, you know, you entered this world you were not equipped to handle, right? Yeah. As we so often hear from leaders. Right. What was the turning point for you where you woke up one day or the situation that happened and you're like, I need to do something different? You know, it really was the crashing and burning experience <laughs> because our marriage was falling apart. Literally, my wife and I say that our first marriage ended in failure after six years. We were just fallen apart and we, we were trying we had these two babies and we were barely making ends meet financially and I was two and doing two two jobs and we were angry at each other we were yelling at each other we were we were deeply dissatisfied with our lives and it started affecting everything including our capacity to you know to to meet the needs of our kids 
And it took for me, it should have taken that for me, but it took for me getting to that point to say, if I don't make some changes, everything about my life is going to fall apart. Mm. And everything I had hoped for, everything that I wanted my life to be about, which included a, a healthy marriage and, and kids who were thriving and being able to make a contribution in my work, all of that was going to be gone unless I made some big changes. So for me, it took that crash and burn experience. What was the first step in the change? You know, it really was, I mean, my wife was far more tuned in from the beginning than I was, and she was trying to tell me, you, you, we need you to pay attention to this. It's not going well. Pay attention to what? what was to, the to the fact that kind of things are falling apart at home. Uh. And, you know, and like a lot of young professionals, I was very focused on my work and the, the difficulties with Ben and, and in our marriage meant that I gave even more energy to work. So uh. it, it, that's kind of the, the, um, the workaholic thing is that I'm going to go, uh, you know, and, and I could justify it for myself because, you know, I've got to work two jobs. We've got to make more money da 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 or, yeah. uh, you know, it's kind of looking at the financial side of things where, where emotionally our world was falling apart. And, you know, my wife was telling me, you need to pay attention to this, but it finally got to a point where I could no longer ignore it. Things started going badly at work you know, cause I, I was, wasn't healthy there either. And we finally had to make a big change. In our case, it meant moving out of the situation that we were in and discovering some resources like Greenspan that, that I hadn't been aware of before, but making a commitment at that point, I'm going to do things differently. I make that commitment to you as my wife. I'm making that commitment to my kids. I'm moving out of this work situation where I, I've developed patterns of obsession that, I need to get out of. So I changed my work situation, made that commitment to my wife and my kids, really started drilling down into what is going on using resources like Greenspan and started to make some real changes in, uh, and it took a long time. This is not something that you, you learn to do better immediately. Those emotional intelligence capacities of self-awareness and self-management and social awareness and relationship management those weren't skills that I had really worked on developing, but now I realize I'm going to have to work on developing and they're skills that can be learned. I, I am not stuck with just, this is my temperament. This is my, these are my habits. I'm just stuck here. And this is where growth mindset came in. It was, it was, I can learn these things. These are skill sets. These are competencies. And I'm, I'm going to have to start working on them in the same way I've devoted time and energy to these other things that I do well. Mm. I'm going to have to work on these so I can start at least beginning to do them well in a, in a way that will help uh, my family thrive. Thinking about what you said about retreating into the workplace, and I, you're not the first person I've heard say that, and I've, I've had times in my life where that's happened too, yeah. where things weren't going well or there was a struggle, and it's work is it's very measurable in a lot of ways. It it's is. very defined. Here's the goals yeah. we're working toward. Here's the numbers we're trying to hit this quarter. Here's exactly. the metrics we're watching. Yeah. It's easy to ignore the complexity of other things going on in life and put more and to then justify it by saying, hey, we need to make the money. We need to, I need to, I'm doing this for our career and for our family. Exactly. Sounds like that happened to you too. It, it absolutely happened. And I, I think, you know, in, in particular, it happens often when there are children with special needs born into a family. The, the divorce rate is extremely high because 
the feeling of incompetence and the feeling like I can't do this, I don't know how to do this, is amplified by the needs of, of that child. And as you said, the workplace can be an alternative setting to, to feel competent, to feel like here, yes, I know I can do this. But ultimately, the impact of that on a person as a, as, as a team member, it's going to come out somewhere at some point. Uh, if you don't deal with those issues as they arise on a personal level, ultimately, it will come out somewhere. And oftentimes, it does come out in the workplace, which is why cultivating emotional intelligence in the workplace among our teams is so critical, because sometimes it comes out in dysfunction in the workplace because it hasn't been dealt with on a personal and family level. Indeed, in fact, perhaps often uh, it, it, it manifests that way. And it, that's why I was really fascinated to hear what you've done at the Orange County Department of Education. And of course, it's a huge organization, a government organization. And so you're doing some really innovative things. And forgive me for saying this, government isn't always the first place we think of when we think of innovation, <laughs> right? Right. And yet you've really taken the mantra of some of which you've learned in your own personal story in your family, and you've applied it and put it into place in this role. And and you've been in the role now three or four years? This is year five. Year, year five. five, okay. Yeah. So uh, tell me about Growth Mindset, because you mentioned that a couple of times already, and that's that's a very well-known book. And how did this start for you? Where, where did the Growth Mindset come from? You know, I think I was aware of Carol Dweck's work. Carol Dweck is a professor at Stanford. Many of your listeners will be aware of her book, Mindset. It's had a huge impact both in education and in other sectors. I became aware of it probably written around 2006, so somewhere about that time. It became extremely relevant during the period of the Great Recession, which took such a huge toll on so many organizations and people were feeling a sense of despair uh, in the education sector. We were feeling like, wow, the money is more and more limited. We were having huge cuts. People were losing their jobs. And that sense of despair can be paralyzing. And part of the gift of Dweck's book is to say that though this feels like the end of the story, it's not the end of the story. Though it feels like there's nothing else we can do, there is that which we can do. Though it feels like our best efforts have failed, that doesn't mean that our future efforts will also fail. Growth mindset is a way of getting beyond our despair and our, our sense of hopelessness about change to a belief that, in fact, we have agency and we can keep working at things and we can make changes. And so it, it made sense for us as an organization to say, let's embrace that approach even when times are hard, and especially when times are hard, and again, rise from the ashes and have the confidence that we can do that. So you took, the, this is a, a hugely important role in county government as chief academic officer of a huge department of education. Um, we have a huge population here in Orange County, of course. You come in five years ago and you see, I mean, we're still in the midst very much of the recession and the fallout from that. Where did this start? Where did you, where did you and some of your the leaders in the team start thinking like, okay, we need to we need to approach this differently? You know, we have a county superintendent of schools in Orange County, Dr. Almi Harris, who had come the year before me to the Orange County Department of Education as the county superintendent of schools. And his vision was very, very strong. We have work to do. Orange County, we have uh, five hundred thousand students. 
And Orange County is a very wealthy county overall, but the fact is 50% of our students in Orange County are eligible for free and reduced lunch. That means they're from low-income families, 50%. Wow. 30,000 of those students are either homeless or living in unstable housing situation in hotels or, or, you know, bunking up with family, moving from house to house. 30,000 children. We have you know, students who historically have been underrepresented who have not had the same kind of opportunities. So Dr. Mihadis came in with a vision. It is really, really important that we be fully focused on making a difference in the lives of these students. We can't settle into despair. We can't have a sense that uh, there's nothing else we can do. No, we have to be fully engaged. Growth mindset is a way to do that. And we need a strategic plan and process that will move that vision forward and make a difference on behalf of these students. It really matters. And so when I came to work with him, it was engaging with that vision and saying, how best do we equip our teams so that they feel fully engaged in such a way that they're able to make that kind of difference on behalf of of students who really, really need it. Which in a sense is, speaking of changing mindset, it's, it's a mindset change from where we've seen public education go in the country over the last decade or so, because so much of it has been focused on standardized testing, no child left behind, all things very well intended, but have had some consequences too of looking at just the academic achievement and numerical scores and not looking at sometimes the emotional piece or the whole child, as I know this is some of the language you all use, right? That's absolutely right. There's so much going on inside of students that's not captured by that and that's critical to their flourishing and succeeding ultimately in a very challenging world. And one of the dimensions in which they need to be capable of, of thriving is in this dimension of the emotions and, and social interaction. We became much more attuned to the need to focus on that. And part of it was we're seeing far larger numbers of students who are coming to us with stress, anxiety, depression, and trauma from the earliest stages of their lives some of it came out of the great recession where families were in extremely disrupted economic situations and kids needs were not met in the same way that they might have been in in a more prosperous time but there are all kinds of other factors in that growing phenomenon of trauma including uh, you know the kind of violence that uh, pervades the culture we see it all around us kids are exposed to that constantly And their need for social and emotional tools is greater than ever before. So while we're attending to this with our teams, we also recognize the need to attend to this with the children and their teachers that this this emotional dimension will, if, if neglected, will be a huge obstacle to their ultimately flourishing in the way we want them to flourish. So you're looking at the whole child concept and and also from your own organization, the whole adult, That's really, right. it, of how do adults who are navigating also a very difficult time and interacting with students, many of them who are disadvantaged, also getting a lot of those stressors and those those challenges on a daily basis. That's exactly right. Our sense is that what we're after, no matter what sector we're from, is human flourishing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's human flourishing at the individual level, at the level of, of families, at the level of communities, at the level of schools, and ultimately human flourishing in our society as a whole. And every sector can make a contribution to that. We want to partner with every sector, business and industry, community agencies, government, family, faith communities, 
because together we have this common interest in contributing to human flourishing. So if we want to do that, it makes sense that we do that in our workplace with the people who are on our team so that they themselves are flourishing and can make the contribution uh, ultimately that, that they're capable of making to that human flourishing. So this whole adult mindset going along with the whole child mindset, yeah. the strategic vision. Yes. What did you do? Like, how did this actually play out? Because that's a great vision. I think a lot of organizations have that. Yeah. But you, you really... You really, uh, really put the rubber to the road. <laughs> well, that that was what we were aiming to do, and I can't say that we had a grand plan. It really was where do we start? What would be something to start with? And we did, as you said, we had as a strategic priority the whole child, the whole person. And Dweck had been, you know, the growth mindset stuff had had an impact on a number of us in leadership. So we decided we need to invest in our in our people and really make that growth mindset idea central to our uh, you know professional development for our teams and so we began with a year of learning communities around the the mindset book peer facilitated learning communities of 15 to 20 people where our team members would have a chance to get together with people from other divisions and uh, and really just talk about what in what is entailed in this growth mindset and if you've read Dweck's book you know it's very accessible and it touches on a lot of aspects of life beyond simply the workplace and so over a year our our managers and supervisors and then subsequently our uh, frontline staff formed these learning communities and, and shared their learnings. And essentially, we developed a common language about growth mindset within the organization. So how did that, how did that come together? Like if I went to one of those meetings, yep. what would it look like? It varied because we have peer facilitators who had the freedom to kind of shape that group in the way they want to. But the basic idea was you would come together with these colleagues from other sectors and essentially have conversation about a passage from this book. And it, it could be a passage about family, it could be a passage about health, it could be a passage about work, but how the growth mindset impacts each of those domains and uh, hear from colleagues, share what your experience has been. And that would happen over a period of, of weeks, multiple meetings over weeks, an hour a week, let's say for six or eight weeks, that you would have a chance to really build relationships, share experiences, come up with ideas that would strengthen your own growth mindset. And that learning community really became an important part of people's formation. Hmm. I know a lot of organizations where they've tried to do something like this and you know people are a little resistant to it or they're not really sure what to expect. What did you hear from people initially and how did you kind of overcome that initial hump? You know, we did we did kick off activities that brought the whole uh, group together. So the superintendent and I and others on our team were able to kind of set uh, uh, an anticipatory set of, you know, the importance of this and how it had impacted us and why we believed it was important. And so people pretty quickly embraced it and, mm -hmm. and, and experienced it as an opportunity that they wanted to participate in. They felt the hopefulness of it. They felt the sense that we as an organization were committed to their growth and and saw this as something that they could participate in during the workday 
And so it, it was generally perceived as an investment that we were making in their growth as, as, as people and in their flourishing. And coming right from the top too, Come, uh, with from the, leadership. Absolutely, with the superintendent's endorsement, stamp of approval, and sharing of his own journey on it. And you you all made an investment during the workday to do this as an organization, which is a big investment to make. And so that leadership right from the top, investing time during the day, clear the kickoff. I mean, so many of these things... A lot of organizations here, all those elements, but putting them together and all doing them well consistently is something I don't see happen very often. What was the roadmap you were following? Did you did you just have a sense from your academic background of like what needed to happen or were there other models you looked to to do that? You know, we really did not have a roadmap. It was emergent. We allowed it to be emergent. That's part of what we wanted, an organic quality to it. We have a wonderful cabinet, a leadership team that as uh, that were participants in this entire process. So as as the staff and, and managers and supervisors are doing growth mindset, we're doing growth mindset. And then from there, we went to emotional intelligence using Daniel Goleman's book. And as our teams were doing that, we were doing that as well. And, and we were, you know, sort of uh, tracking and being attentive to what was emerging out of the conversations that our teams were having. And in, in that sort of organic way, we've been able to kind of continue to shape this in a way that we believe is uh, continuing to equip our teams to, to flourish, thrive, and ultimately perform. What have you noticed as now third year in this project? What's changed? You know, I think we, we have a common language in the organization now around growth mindset and around emotional intelligence, mindfulness, that is really become the language of the organization. And it's not infrequent for us to be in a meeting where we'll be up against some difficult thing and people will start feeling like, wow, you know, can we really do something about it and have somebody then talk about growth mindset? Or it's not uncommon for us to be in a situation where we're talking about a conflict within a unit or a particular a personnel challenge and have somebody talk about emotional intelligence. It has become a common language for us and that common language allows us to address, address issues in a more subtle and nuanced way that is informed by the emotional dimension in a way that I don't think it would have been four, four years ago. Part of the challenge, I imagine, with the employees you're working with and, of course, the students in these tough situations is people run into situations all the time that would normally that would cause people to crash and burn and, and, right. and need to recover. How has this helped with prevention on that and resilience when they run in those tough situations? You know, some of the challenges we face are challenges that arise when we have emotional intelligence failures in our interactions. That is, uh, let's say I'm a manager and I'm uh, experiencing resistance from an employee or I have two employees who are in conflict with each other. If I'm exercising my emotional intelligence the way I will approach that challenge is different than if I'm going directly from stimulus to response. I feel this, boom, I'm going to react that way. And that reaction sometimes creates challenges for us that are larger than the initial issue. And the accumulation of those challenges that can arise out of my not functioning with emotional intelligence can create circumstances that ultimately will lead to me crashing. So the, the emotional intelligence competencies, if you will, are preventative of issues that could be dealt with when they're small instead of 
fanning flames that then become a fire and create a major problem for me down the road. So I think in that sense, emotional intelligence does play a preventative role. What do you hear from your managers and leaders in the organization about this? You know, we very consistently hear people express, I've had people say to me, this changed my life, Mm. which is a rare thing to have come out of professional development. And a lot of it is I recognize how the lessons that I'm learning about emotional intelligence for my leadership have relevance to my family relationships and I'm doing things differently there now because of what I've been learning here. And I so resonate that with that because, you know, Ben is now 25 kind of to, to tie it back to my own experience. Christine and I have been married 27 years. We've been through our share of, you know, we, we talk of, about a J curve in our journey from crisis to survival mode to beginning to thrive to consistently thriving. And we've been on that cycle a few times, but we know what it is now. In fact, Christine and I do workshops for families and for staff on from crisis to surviving to thriving. And, you know, the growth in emotional intelligence has allowed us to navigate those changes uh, over time in such a way that we've become much more healthy as a couple and as a family. And both our kids are thriving. And Ben, as a 25-year-old, is one of the healthiest, most caring and loving people I know. What's the biggest thing that you've learned in the last three years of navigating this professional development uh, project with a very large team? You know, I think one of the key learnings, and I think this would be true for any organization, is it can't be a one and done. It can't be, okay, we're going to talk about emotional intelligence in the next three workshops, and then we'll move on to the next thing. These skill sets are demanding the competencies, it take time to develop. It's an incredibly rich and complex domain that people need time to explore and to go deep in and to practice. And so, so having it be something that you do over an extended period of time, I think is critical. And over time, uh, we really can grow in these areas given the opportunity. Speaking of growth, uh, one of the things we talk about a lot on the show is growth and failure and learning from mistakes, of course. What's something that you believe today or hold true today that five years ago maybe you didn't recognize or maybe you thought very differently on? You know, I'd probably go back earlier than five years ago. There was, you know, there was a time in, in my formation where I really felt like if I thought the right thoughts and had the right cognitive strategies and could figure things out, then everything will be good. And part of that arose from the fact that I grew up in Haiti and I was a child at the time where there was a dictator named Duvalier. And Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes at night I heard machine gun fire outside of my window. It was a very frightening, scary environment. And where I went was into my head. It was like, I'm going to have, you know, these emotions are actually very, very frightening. I can't, I don't know what to do with them. So I'm going to go into my head. I'm going to figure things out. I'm going to be as rational as possible. And that will keep me safe from, from those, you know, fearful emotions. Sure. And it worked for me in a way. Academically, it worked well. And, you know, professionally, it got me into a certain place. But there was a place beyond which it could not get me because ultimately I had to deal with those emotions 
because they are a critical part of who I am and who we all are. And ultimately, the best thinking is the thinking that brings harmony to our emotional mind and our rational mind. Um, those together give us the best ideas, the best thoughts, and, and the best ways to navigate the world. And uh, I didn't know that when I was younger. And now I've seen it work over a long period of time, and it's, it's very powerful. There's a famous book by Marshall Goldsmith we've talked about on the show before called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Uh-huh. And, you know, I've, it's just, it's interesting to me how often talking with leaders that something that worked really well at one point in our life. Yes. Like in your case, yeah. growing up in such a, as a very difficult environment, like that logical, rational yeah. approach kept you going and Did. kept you safe emotionally and maybe even physically. And, and yet didn't equip you for what you needed next. And the the leaders who seem to be very successful, I've noticed, have been able to do what you did with obviously challenge and, and trepidation too, but to yeah. be able to at some point stop and say, this isn't good enough. Yes. I need a different skill set to navigate this next phase of my life, my career, my work, my family. Exactly. And it would be nice to say, well, now I'm finally here and I've got it. But the reality is, and, <laughs> and growth mindset contributes to this, is yeah. the next phase may demand something... Uh, that I, I'm not even thinking about now. Yeah. And to embrace that and recognize that too is part of growth and development and part uh, and ultimately part of what it means to flourish as a, as a human being. Jeff, uh, thank you so much for your time sharing your story. Uh, I so appreciate not only that you've been such a great supporter of the show and shared it with your staff um, and, and hello to those of you listening, but also uh, just the wonderful leadership you're bringing to uh, such an important uh, government agency and and of course the work you're doing with kids here in the Orange County Department of Education. So thank you so much. I appreciate it, Dave, and I love the show and you're you're making a huge contribution to the lives of leaders, including ours. Thank you, Jeff. Jeff always loves connecting with folks in our listening community, and you heard him mention that uh, he's even uh, doing teaching of parents on how to uh, work through some of the challenges that uh, his wife and him worked through earlier in their marriage. If you'd like to connect with Jeff, LinkedIn is a great way to do so. I'll be sure to put that link in the show notes and this week's leadership guide as well. And if this conversation has gotten you thinking about where you may go to either rise up from the ashes or just really tap into that growth mindset. A really helpful starting point is figuring out where you are today. And if you're listening to this shortly after it comes out in early December 2017, then a resource that's available to you right now is a 10-minute life score assessment from Michael Hyatt. You can reach it at coachingforleaders.com slash score one word. And if you haven't taken an assessment like this before, it will give you pretty immediate clarity on a number of the important areas of life and how you're handling them, what you're doing or not doing in each of those areas. And if you'll take a few minutes to do that assessment, I think it will really give you a starting point for thinking about where you want to start really tapping into that growth mindset, not only now, but beginning in the new year. So again, you can access that. It's just available for the next week or so. Go to coachingforleaders.com slash life score. I'll have the link again in this week's coming leadership guide. And while you're online, if you haven't yet set up your free membership on the Coaching for Leaders website, that is a great way to get access to a lot more information on some of the things we talked about today in the conversation with Jeff. 
He mentioned a number of the tactics that they're using for talent development and training in their organization. There are entire categories in the podcast library on the free membership portal on talent development, training skills, personal leadership, many of the things we talked about in today's episode, tons of other resources and experts we've had on the show talking about some of those. I'll mention a few of them here in just a moment, but you can access the entire library by setting up your free membership right now. Just go to coachingforleaders.com right on the homepage there. You'll see a place to do that. It gives you access to the entire podcast library from the last almost seven years now, organized by topic, plus a ton of other resources, including the member cast, my personal library, coachingforleaders.com is where to go for that. Now, a few of those episodes that you may want to check out if today's conversation got you thinking about your own growth and the growth of others in your organization. Episode number 30, this is going back uh, several years, uh, but the topic on this episode just as relevant today as it was when it was first aired. I aired an episode on six mistakes leaders make sending people to training. As many of you know, I have been in the training and development industry now for Uh, the better part of almost 20 years now, getting close to it. And I have seen a lot of mistakes over the years that organizations and leaders and managers make when they send people to training. And in that episode, I detailed the six most common ones that I have seen over my career. I have seen them again and again and again. I still see them very regularly. Uh, Episode 30 is a great one to check out. If you are sending people to training or thinking about sending people to training, uh, those are six things that if you avoid will give you a much better return on investment for your organization. So again, that's episode number 30. Also, check out episode number 155, Three Strategies to Build Talent in Your Organization. Mark Allen, one of my professors at Pepperdine University uh, when I was doing my graduate work there, was on that show. Mark is an extremely talented authority on corporate training, corporate universities. Uh, We talked in that episode on some of the key strategies for putting together training programs and corporate development in your organization. We also talked about some of the common mistakes there as well, too. If that is something your organization is doing or you're thinking about doing, episode 155, a great starting point. And uh, Mark has several books out that also give you a good starting point for strategy on how to do that. And then you also heard Jeff and I mentioned Marshall Goldsmith in this conversation. Marshall was on episode number 196 talking about his most recent book, Triggers, Creating Behavior That Lasts. If you're looking to create the kind of behavior that is sustainable for you and for your organization, that is a very important starting point. Episode 196, Marshall went into detail on how he does it for himself, how he coaches clients to do it, and some of the models that he teaches all over the world and to some of the top corporate executives. So again, episode 196 where is where to go for that. You can reach any of those episodes just by going to coachingforleaders.com slash the episode number. That will get you there. And one of my favorite things to do each week is to go visit iTunes and check out some of the reviews that many of you have listed over the last week. And uh, I had a great time going to read one of the reviews left by Beezer Boy in Canada this week. He wrote, This podcast is causing me three issues. Number one, I don't listen to music much anymore because I'm always listening to Dave. I miss my music. Number two, my boss says I spend too much time learning about leadership. Not sure what to think of that. And number three, my coworkers cannot have a conversation with me about interpersonal affairs at work without me sending them a podcast from Dave. If Dave and his guests were less interesting, I could go back to my one-man road trip concerts. Beezer boy... This is just one more piece of evidence 
why I have never met a Canadian I did not like. Thank you so much for the kind review. Hey, if you've been listening to the show for a bit and the show's been helpful to you too, take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. I read them all. makes my week every time. Thank you so much. Coachingforleaders.com slash iTunes, where to go. See you next week for another topic on leadership. Take care.